1: Today's guest on the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast is a six-season NHL veteran. He's part of one of the greatest teams in Hockey Canada history. It's one of the reasons Hockey Night in Canada is as enjoyable now as it's been in a long time. And he's brought something completely new to Hockey Twitter with his face-swapping sorcery. It's Sportsnet Anthony Stewart. Anthony, how you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today.
1: Uh, not a problem. So I mentioned off the top, you know, Hockey Night in, Pana- Hockey Night in Canada panelist. Uh, so we know what your routine is now on Saturday nights, but I do wonder what Saturday nights meant to you when you were a star minor hockey player and a NHL prospect. And are you sort of pinching yourself now that you're uh, a hockey night in Canada mainstay?
0: Well, as a player, uh, Saturday night usually meant game night. So afternoon naps. So I look forward to the big mm. pasta meals. And now that I'm a little bit older and don't really burn the calories I used to, I have to take it easy on the pasta. And <laughs> now that I have four kids, I'm not really napping as much. So Uh, It's been an amazing opportunity now that I've had since I finished playing and and being on Hockey Night in Canada and Hockey Central. And the one thing I can say, everyone from Ron McLean to Elliot Friedman, Jeff Merrick, David Amber, all those guys have been amazing and helping me during my process and transition from a player to now analyst.
1: So maybe no pasta, but there's got to be a pregame or a pre-broadcast routine before you guys go on the air. Is there something that... uh... Uh, that superstition carried into this next phase of your career well, or anything that you is, do before? Any-
0: the key is now, because usually when you get there, they give you dinner and then you have like, if you're doing the late game, they usually bring Boston pizza. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Mm. I don't want to eat twice. So I got to get something that's going to hold me over the whole entire <laughs> night until one in the morning. So I usually go with Chipotle. So if I eat Chipotle at six o'clock, a little burrito, thousand calories that holds me over for the rest of the night, as opposed to eating dinner and then pizza as a snack.
1: Uh, Are you a guac guy? Do you do the extra guac? Pay for the guac? No, I'm
0: just straight chicken, chicken, hot sauce, sour cream, lettuce. That's all. That's all I need. Ready to go.
1: There you go. Okay. So was this the goal when you started into media? I mean, what were your expectations when you hung up the skates and started into this uh, new industry?
0: Uh, well, it just started basically on my Twitter I spend all day on Twitter just tweeting memes and gifs and just having a lot of fun chirping old buddies and ex teammates and uh, one of the program directors at Sportsnet asked me if uh, I was interested in trying radio and I said, hey, yeah, I'm not doing anything much. I'm coaching some minor hockey here and there, but uh, I ended up starting doing like just a part time uh, leaf segment on the Jeff Blair show and uh, Mm -hmm. that now turned into Hockey Central. They made a lot of changes uh, last year and some uh, regulars ended up going in a different direction and uh, I got the opportunity to do Hockey Central. So I really, really got my real opportunity to do the TV now was during the pandemic, uh, travel was sort of cordoned off. So there wasn't guys flying in like Corby Armstrong and and, uh, guys like Kelly Rudy. So they needed local guys. So the only reason why I feel that I got the opportunity because I didn't say no to anything. Anything they asked me, can you do this? Yes, 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 yes. I didn't say no. So eventually that got me all the way to doing the playoffs. And I got about, uh, I think, two years of experience uh, in about two months doing the playoffs because we were doing sometimes three games a day. I was going back to back three games in four nights where I really got to learn the inside on how it works being an analyst and working the TV side.
1: I mentioned that from my perspective, it's been more enjoyable to watch Hockey Canada, hockey Night in Canada of late. Uh, and I think the biggest change that I've seen, and dating back to the bubble when you started, is it just seems to be like more fun is being had on these broadcasts. That stuff sort of shines through when fun is had between colleagues, it seems. So are you guys having as much fun as it seems you're having?
0: Yeah, we're having a lot of fun and... Uh... You know, Kevin I used to get the upper hand on everybody because he was in studio but now he's <laughs> doing it remotely in California there's a bit of a delay so he can't get his one-liners out as quick because he's sitting at home in his bunkers so uh, it's just been great the one thing is no one really takes themselves too seriously it's laid back and you know guys are chirping Elliot Freeman's beard he was wearing a turtleneck the other day so everyone's having a lot of fun Ron McLean's got his one-liners and his soliloquies and it's just a, a fun atmosphere. So that's what makes it easier. It can be very, very intimidating. You're in this new setting. It's Saturday night. All of Canada's watching. You got the lights. You got the cameramen, And then the spotlight's on you. But the fact that it's a laid-back, easygoing atmosphere, it makes it an easy transition for sure.
1: Is there a better rivalry in hockey than BXA versus Friedman?
0: <laughs> I don't know if it's a rivalry. I think it's more so a beatdown. <laughs> and I always, I always message... Elliot, I'm like, hey, anytime you need me to get BXA, like I can get him on the radio. I can get him. Just let me know because, (laughs) but Elliot's been great about it. He loves it. He thinks it's great TV and uh, Mm -hmm. he actually, he holds his own uh, some of the times.
1: Uh, Brian Burke played the Cumrudgeon role beautifully, but I imagine uh, the operation has lost more than just his level of entertaining grump when he went to Pittsburgh. So how are things a little bit different now that Brian Burke has uh, returned to the game?
0: Yeah, it's it sucks. Everyone was great. Uh, everyone was great to Berkey, and everyone was really really sad to see him go. And the one thing I could say about Berkey is like he's probably one of the sharpest minds in in all of hockey, especially when it comes to chirping and one liners. And like I was a guy loud, and I had all the one liners in the dressing room, but. He had more one-liners than I could even think of. And just his storytelling ability was amazing and just telling you how it is. And, you know, he gets sort of that uh, reputation that he's a grumpy guy, but he's fun to be around. I've been to his house and, you know, been over for dinner. And just uh, getting the opportunity to learn and learn from him and see his experience in the hockey world. He's probably one of the top hockey minds in the history of hockey and all the people that he's put on in his coaching tree has been amazing so to to rub shoulders with him has been great for me and as a first-time guy coming in and you know having a guy that's been in the NHL and knows how the business works and now on the media side to lean on he was definitely great so it's sad to see him go but at the end of the day he is a hockey guy through and through and you know he's excited for the opportunity with the Pittsburgh Penguins.
1: You guys also have the best in the business steering the ship uh, over at Sportsnet. How do guys like Merrick McLean, Amber, make things easier on new analysts coming in and getting their start?
0: They've been great. Like Jeff, you know, you you mentioned a name and he'll be like, oh, I remember this guy in the Memorial Cup in 1996. Like he's a hockey encyclopedia. Yeah. Same thing with Ron McLean, where we'll be watching a game and, you know, someone will get tripped and he'll be like, okay, this trip, can you pull up the clip of uh, the 1986 Stanley Cup uh, second round finals where... Uh, this person tripped this person so these guys got such hockey minds where they're hockey people through and through it's definitely great to be around and David Amber probably one of the most professional guys he's got the booming voice and he's been great as well too so Sportsnet the one thing I could see they got the best and the best the best of the best in the business
1: almost like they're playing host and producer at the same time uh, I mentioned that it feels different watching the show but it also looks different um, how proud are you to be a part of of what is very importantly a more diversified hockey night in Canada offering with yourself, David Amber, Jennifer Botterill, Cassie Campbell, Sarah Nurse. Uh, what sort of benefit have you experienced uh, from this departure from what was the norm and, and you know that pretty limited set of perspectives that we saw for a long time?
0: Well, I'm a big proponent of, of representation. I think representation matters, and you know I really wasn't into everything about being a minority in the business, but it's really really important because now you know people are a lot more conscious of the times and, and They know exactly what's going on. So I think the ability, if there's gonna be one kid to sort of watch TV and see me on TV and say, you know what, maybe I can do that. It's yeah. worth it. And again, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a TV guy and have to work on my, you know, pronunciation and announcing words and stuff like that too. But, uh, the fact that I am a role model for the next generation of kids, not just hockey players, but you know, maybe they want to get into broadcasting or get into media. The fact that they can see a person like myself or Jennifer bought or David Amber and say, "Where are 10, 15 years ago, they may, might be able to say, ah, there's no one that really looks like me. This is not for me. 10 years later, they have that opportunity now.
1: Definitely. Uh, One thing that separates you from other Hockey Night panelists is the activity on Twitter. Uh, So what draws you into that hell space? And uh, do you realize that nothing has been the same since you introduced face swapping software to Hockey Twitter?
0: (laughs) It's uh, it's madness. I'll tell you that. And it's funny. Like I'll see something happen in a game and it'll remind me of something from a movie or a song and... Uh, someone always chirps me, you know, you, you're you pretty crazy to spend $30 for that free face app. And I'm like, I would spend $300 for this app, the quality entertainment that it's giving me. And it's funny when I use someone's face and they're like, Oh my God, this is horrifying. So it's definitely entertaining. And it's a added element to the gifts that I've been doing on on twitter but again it's all in good fun and that's what twitter should be about it's there to get news and have a good laugh so i think a lot of people especially some fans in general they take it too serious where it's all about i gotta get my opinion out and i gotta prove everybody wrong i'm like you can prove me wrong 10 times out of 10 i'm still gonna get a laugh out of it i don't take it too seriously neither should you
1: that leads me to my next question which is what would you say your relationship is with maple leaf's twitter
0: it's funny with Maple Leafs Twitter on the radio. It's I'm a Homer. I love the Leafs, and all I do is talk about the Leafs. But when I get on TV, <clears throat> excuse me, that I that I uh, that I hate the Leafs. And mm. again, it's I'm not uh, I'm a hockey fan in general. I cheered for the Maple Leafs growing up along with the Montreal Canadiens. I know that's a bit of an oxymoron, but uh, I'm a hockey fan through and through. And again, it's that's the, the, the universe of Twitter, where one, they hang on every single little word that you say. And I think it goes back to them just taking it too seriously. But that just shows, you know, how crazy some fans are and how um, engaged they are with their team. So it's not just a, an app. It's a culture for some people. And they take it seriously. So I'd say take a step back and relax a bit.
1: What is the one take that caused the most uproar? Or You know r- exactly maybe-
0: what it is. If I type in the word N-Y-L... <laughs> the fans just jump right on whenever you mention William Nylander. And if it's not about how dreamy he is or how sick of a hockey player it is, they yeah. come in droves. And the best part was I was talking about his effort level and, you know, they are getting out heat maps of my career and my shot charts and saying, you're brutal. You have no no business talking about <laughs> Nylander with your career. So uh, I think the the Crusaders are in, in, in favor of uh, Nylander. So do not type his name uh, in a negative like, or they'll come for you too.
1: I've I've crossed that line before, and uh, I know now not to do it. Okay, let's get into some legitimate Leaf questions. Uh, let's start with Wayne Simmons. You know Wayne Simmons well, Birchmount Birch Park Collegiate. Uh, both of you guys went there. Uh, I wonder if there's one thing, knowing that you know more about Simmons than most others, is there one thing that he's bringing to the Leafs that is maybe not talked about enough?
0: Uh, I just think the respect that he has around not just the Leafs dressing room, but just the NHL. And I go Mm. back to just talking about his time in Philly. Like if he, if they won a Stanley cup with him there, the role that he played, he would have a statue outside the building. Like Bobby Clark, you know, he's a guy that's well-respected where he could go back in 10, 15 years and be a GM if that's what really he wanted to do. So he's earned that respect, just how he plays and, um, you know, I've had teammates over the years and come up to me and say, well, you know, how how much does that Simmons weigh? Is he 210, 220? I'm like, no, he's 185 pounds soaking wet. But that just shows how tough he is and and how hard of a game that he plays on a night in, night out basis. So, um, you know, when I was talking about him coming here, I I don't think the fans really understood that part. And you see when he scores a goal, you see the joy on his teammates' faces. You know, Matthews rarely smiles, but when Simmons scores or he gets an opportunity or has some success, that's one of the few times that Matthews scores because he's genuinely, you know, proud of Wayne Simmons. And that just shows what yeah. type of respect that he commands, not just in the dressing room, but out throughout the league. So that respect factor goes a long way and it's starting to show in Toronto.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Simmons might be the first guy that Austin Matthews has leapt into his arms in a regular (laughs) season goal. That didn't actually mean uh, too, too much. Now, I don't want to get you into more trouble, but criticizing John Tavares has been taboo, so it's, I guess, a possibility if... If you indeed feel a certain type of way about his performance this year, but he's one of the guys that stuck out for me as as potentially uh, an issue this year, just in terms of how he's performed at a f- at five on five, and maybe the you know the offensive numbers declining uh, even from you know since he got here. Do you share in any concern about John Tavares, and is is one of the reasons why the Leafs have dipped a little bit? The fact that uh, he hasn't been able to p- pick up the slack that maybe Austin Matthews has let go a little bit as he nurses his wrist injury.
0: Well, it's a little concerning, but I'll be—I'll uh, leave the judgment out until after the playoffs and see exactly where he is after the playoffs. But it's—it's it's a tough, tough market, and it's tough to come to Toronto with the media and and the the circus around that and the high expectations with the contract and really, you know, really live up to that. You know, unless he's putting up a hundred points a year, you know, the fans are going to be ah, you know, he's not really earning that contract, but you know, say what you want. He is an elite player in the National Hockey League. He earned that contract and he was one of the most coveted free agents at the time that he was up for his contract. So Mm -hmm. I think the problem is in Toronto, you know, when you're going, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes into a game and you're not really feeling it, you know, in New York, you you had to find a way to battle and get into the game. But in Toronto, there's three or four other guys that can carry the torch. So naturally, you sort of take a step back and let those guys sort of take over. But, you know, we're talking about Toronto right now, taking the next step in their development and, you know, potentially challenging for a Stanley Cup. They need they need John Tavares playing at a point of game clip. And I know he's close to that now, but for what I want to see now is when he's not scoring, is he winning his face offs? Is he playing a little bit physical? Is he getting into the net, tipping pucks, being hard to play against too? So I think the points will eventually come, but he's got to take that leadership role in Toronto because he was named the captain and that comes with, uh, you know, a heavy workload. So it's, you know, the midpoint of the season, can he play better? Yeah, I'm sure he'd admit that, but let's reserve judgment until to see exactly where they are after these playoffs.
1: That's fair. Uh, What do you think the team's biggest need is before the deadline, and and how would you go about uh, rectifying that?
0: Um, I'm going to go depth. I'm going to go depth on defense just based on the fact that, you know, last year when they lost Muzzin for a period of time, it really decimated the D-Corp. So I would like to add, I would like for them to add you know, maybe one or two defensemen, maybe a number four, hopefully, and maybe a six, seven a guy that can step in and and play 12, 13 minutes too. So there's been some talk now of them acquiring a, a top six forward, but you look at the cap and you, you want a guy that can come in and score 30 goals, Uh, but you you want him at under you know two and a half million dollars. Well, good luck with that. So you got to mm-hmm. find a way to get that line going, that second line going by committee. uh slotting in that uh that slot right now too. See if he can do it, but. They got to find a cheap forward that can do the job. But I think depth uh, on the back end is going to be key for them this playoffs.
1: So the big controversy last week was Tim Peel being dropped by the NHL for, uh, you know, I guess admitting on a hot mic that he was, you know, performing a makeup call in a game between the Nashville Predators and Detroit Red Wings. Uh, you would know the referee's role in an NHL game just as good as anyone who's played in the league, uh, given your time spent as an NHL player. Uh, do, do you feel like this is a bit of a harsh decision? Uh, I, I understanding the context of him being a couple weeks away from a t- retirement and not being you know a 28-year-old guy who's just sort of uh, getting his legs under him from a career standpoint. But uh, do you feel like it's a little bit harsh that the NHL uh, basically dropped Tim Peel for something that many people consider – just a, a a simple function of the game, which is referees trying to keep control of a game and keeping things uh, sort of equal opportunity situation uh, for teams and players.
0: Well, I'll just say I just I, I hate to see anybody lose their job and it's an unfortunate situation, especially for Tim mm-hmm. Peel. I know he was close to retirement, but to go out that way is definitely unfortunate. But you know from a player's perspective, we know that you know there's made up calls and and you know refs like to control the games at sometimes. So, um, you know, you can be in a certain situation if you're up by two power plays, the coach naturally says, hey guys, we got to play within the rules. The next penalty is coming on us because nine times out of 10, it does. So I think from the player's standpoint, they just want to know what is acceptable and what is not. So if you're going to have a certain standard of calling penalties, okay, let's set that standard and be consistent in staying that way. I think the issue is on one night, if you're going into Nashville, there's a certain standard. If you're going into Philly, there's a certain standard. There's no uh, you know, across the board standard on what is acceptable right. and what's not. But it's a reality. You're not going to be calling a, uh, a trip or, or a hold, you know, 200 feet from your own net in, in the third period. You're not going to call a face-off violation in the third period in the last minute. Sorry, you're not going to do that. So uh, the one thing I think everybody can agree on, um, if you call it by the book, you're going to have 20 power plays a game. So from right. a betting standpoint, that's going to be great because you can bet the over and win some easy money. But you got to <laughs> find a, a commonality. And find uh, a happy medium just to now make sure that the calls are being called, uh, but the referees aren't taking over the game.
1: Well, clearly his mistake was verbalizing it if everyone understands that referees use their discretion and don't call it by the book at, you know exactly every time. Uh, his mistake was saying on a hot mic that this is exactly what he was doing. He was looking to penalize the Nashville Predators, uh, but Matt Duchesne came on the radio and said that he was actually telling the Predators bench what he was doing, which is which is pretty interesting because uh, you know that would you, you'd think that would stoke the fire for a team that's a little bit confused why a penalty was called against them. So uh, I'm wondering if you ever had a referee come to the bench and actually admit that they were, you know, performing a makeup call or making a decision based on other context of the game.
0: No, but I've had refs, you know, say they missed a call and they'll say, hey guys, we'll find a way to get you one. So that's just common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's, I think, one of the reasons why Referees don't do interviews because they'd be honest. I'm sure if you had the referees do an interview after every single game, they probably would admit it in a and not a hot mic and a normal mic. Hey, yeah, yeah, I was looking to get them a penalty there because that is that's not the exception; that's the norm. And whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, that's the way it is. And I'm sure the fans out uh, they want it even and the betters. But um, I just don't like the fact that everyone's calling out the integrity of the game in the National Hockey League, especially when it comes to betting. Because you look at the NFL and look at the NBA they have a lot bigger problems when it comes to officiating. And remember, this is the National Hockey League. It is so fast. And to be able to make calls at full speed, seeing McDavid, and you got to keep up and going up and down the ice, it's very, very tough for a referee. So there's definitely a human element to it. So I think the overall message from this and the lesson could be, let's just find a way to have a little bit more consistency.
1: From your time as a player versus your time as a viewer and analyst, would you like to see a change in the way? Like if you appreciated game management as a player as an analyst now would you like to see more by the book officiating or would you like just a consistency across the board in terms of how it was when you were a player and how it is now as you're more of a fan or a a, uh, a analyst
0: well what i like I'll, I'll 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 answer your question with the question would you like a a jaywalking ticket every time you jaywalk
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point right that's a so good there point. are
0: some rules yeah but there's there are some exceptions to the rules and and again i'm fine with the way they are um, and the one thing I can think you can say is that referees for the most part don't take over the game. They don't want the spotlight to be on them. They know this is the star driven league. They want to find a way to protect the stars and, and, and find ways to not have power plays and penalty kills uh, take over some of the games. You look at a team like, the Buffalo Sabres, who they've only had 15 power plays in their last 11 games. So you can't say they're finding a way to even up calls because they haven't been on the power play because they haven't been that great, uh, especially in the last two months. So uh, just back to what I was saying before, just that consistency. The players just want to know. If you're going to be calling hooks in the first, make sure you're calling it in the third. If you're going to be calling face-off violations, make sure you're sticking to that because sometimes there is a hook that they catch in the first And they let it go. The exact same play, and that's when you see the coaches and the players losing their minds.
1: Yeah, I think that's really the unfortunate reality: is that they are trying their best to stay out of it, and in doing so, if you, you know, it is, it is, uh, I guess, an issue because if it's an integrity thing, but them trying to stay out of it is, you know, managing the game. But admitting that you're managing the game, I guess, is something uh, that would be considered taboo. Okay, I want to get to a few things from your hockey career. And I got to start in 2005 with the World Junior team, uh, one of the more special teams ever uh, put together in a team that's celebrated every time the World Juniors comes around every winter. So I, I just I wonder if it, it's if it felt as special then as it turned out to be.
0: Yeah, we weren't really in the moment. We were on such a business trip um, from the year before where we lost in uh, yeah. in the third period to the U.S. where we were leading 3-1 and Flurry ended up shooting it off Coburn and we knew that we blew it because that was a game that we should have won. So, you know, just judging by the coaching staff that they brought in the next year, they brought in Brent Sutter and, you know, he threatened to cut me the first day of camp. It, it was business. It was business from the first puck drop to the ending uh, against the game against Russia. So we came in there, man, on the mission and... Every practice was high tempo. Every practice was you can't miss a pass because we knew we were going to win that tournament. So you know we like to have our fun away from the ring, but the one thing I remember just that mentality on the ice and just seeing guys like Carter and Getzlaff and Crosby and Bergeron. I'm like this. It felt I'm like this is what the NHL feels like. I never felt a feeling like that. Just the pace and the talent and the skill. There was no doubt that from you know from we assembled that team that we were going to lose that tournament.
1: I was going to ask you what your prevailing memory was from that tournament beyond actually winning gold, but I, you might have just answered it there. Is it the seriousness that you came in and the business-like approach and, and hockey turning into, you know, this fun thing you were doing to this ultra serious thing that's that's yeah. about to hit me when I go to the next level as well.
0: Well, the one thing I always remember and I always talk about this is just Sidney Crosby. He went from like Sid the Kid to the best player in the world the next year and I remember, you know, he came in as a 15-year-old and he was, you know, playing some you know, basically garbage time minutes. And he was, you know, playing third line, 12th forward. And I remember there's a picture of me with my arm around him and saying, Hey, don't worry, kid, you'll be okay. He's got the the fishbowl on. And then the next year he just came in like the best player in the world. And I was just amazed. I'm like, how does somebody get this good in mm-hmm. one year? And I remember, you know, I was put as a 13th forward for one of the games and You know, Sid, the kid, the next year is like, he's got his hand on my shoulder. Hey, Stewie, don't worry. (laughs) It'll be okay. (laughs) So just seeing his transformation from just like a great, you know, a good player to an amazing and best player in the world. That's the one thing I won't forget.
1: That's awesome. Uh, Many stops in your career, which include Florida, Carolina, and Atlanta in the NHL, but also England, Switzerland, Croatia. I just learned that uh, doing some research for this and Russia as well. I wonder... And I wonder this with a lot of uh, players that have a lot of stops in their NHL career or their hockey career. Which stop did feel the furthest, I guess, from home?
0: Uh, Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in uh, Automobilist in Ekaterinburg, and uh, I went to San Jose's camp and ended up getting a contract. End up not getting a contract, so I had to basically catch the next flight out of town and and go take a deal in the KHL and. Uh, Just that lifestyle where, you know, you have to go find your own house, you got to walk to the arena, and it's minus 30. It was definitely Mm. a grind. And, you know, we had some plane flights that were 14 hours long, where it was so long, we had to stop and refuel the plane and just living that Russian lifestyle. It was it was a lot different. It was a lot different from the food to the language, just to the whole different culture, uh, different cultural uh, differences there, too. So uh, Mm. I wouldn't classify it as good or bad, but it was just different. And at that time, I was like, okay, you know what? Uh, This is coming to the end here when you're ending up in Russia. But uh, I had a great time in there. Uh, in in switzerland as well switzerland was an amazing experience and just the fans there and i had a chance to play in the Spengler club Spengler club excuse me and that was just as fun as any world junior tournament and having a family there with me as well too is definitely an experience so i was well traveled uh but i wouldn't change anything for the world so that's the one thing i urge hockey players if you're not a star in the league or you're up and down from the minors have that experience of playing europe just learning different cultures learning uh you know learning to meet different people from different backgrounds was definitely a great experience.
1: And lastly, and it's another question I like to uh, ask those who have taken up on all those experiences that hockey can provide, uh, and you can include your, your you know, Kingston, uh, the minor league stops with this, but I am always curious, um, w- which of those stops was most enjoyable for you? When was hockey the most fun, the absolute most fun during your few decades playing the game at such a high level?
0: Uh, I'd have to say my time in Atlanta because I went from the minors the year before and I uh, had a pretty good playoffs, but I was ready for back, ready back for the NHL. And I just had an opportunity to to play on a second line. I was playing with Evander Kane and Brian Little and, and Nick Antropov some games. And I went from a, a minor league player to, an nhl second liner overnight and just living mm. in a city of atlanta where there's predominantly black and seeing people in my building that just weren't athletes you know i had people driving lamborghinis that were record executives salon owners uh you know business people so just seeing a a, a minority city thrive uh, I felt at home there so it was a definitely hmm. definitely unfortunate that uh, they ended up leaving to Winnipeg the next year. I know it was great for the league but uh, a lot of people when they talk about their experience in Atlanta 9 times out of 10 they're talking something very very positive.
1: Not quite Yekaterinburg. I can't I don't no. think I can say that. Yekaterinburg. No. Anyway, <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Anthony, this was awesome. Uh, before I let you go, I uh, we see the uh, pin on the lapel every uh, time we see you on TV Hawk Equity Or equality, rather. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that project, uh, your involvement in that project, and how others can get involved if if they are uh, uh, willing to do so?
0: Yeah, so it's uh, www.hockeyquality.org, and it's a nonprofit organization that makes hockey more affordable, and it makes it more accessible to people of all backgrounds. And I want to stress all backgrounds. And Mm -hmm. just with the cost, especially in the city of Toronto and Ontario with ice costs, Um, and uh, equipment and registration we're here to alleviate a lot of those hard costs so you know when you come on our ice or you're part of our program you don't have to worry about how much everything's going to cost a lot of those um, prices are taken care of and you're going to have an opportunity to be mentored by people like me and other NHLers and it's definitely a great great uh, program to be a part of and anyone that wants to donate can go to the website to, or if you want to volunteer we're looking for volunteers as well it's definitely a great initiative that's going to change a lot of lives
1: awesome i uh, appreciate appreciate you sharing that i appreciate you coming on uh best of luck with uh, tv and radio moving moving forward and also best of luck with the uh Nylander takes that i'm sure uh, are, are in the holster and ready yeah,
0: to go. thanks a lot appreciate it thank you thank you